Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus has already answered a political question about taxes in verses 15 through 22. He's also answered a theological question about the resurrection in verses 23 through 33. Now he's going to answer an ethical question about the law. The first question was cynical. And it was designed by the followers of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus into making a choice between two responsibilities. The second question was foolish. And it was designed by the Sadducees to make Jesus seem superstitious or stupid. The first question was motivated by hatred. The second question was motivated by unbelief. This third question on the surface seems sincere. But the text tells us that there is a mixed motivation. They want to test Jesus. But whether the question is asked in sincerity or insincerity, it's an important question. The question, of course, is, which is the greatest commandment of the law? It, of course, begs yet another question. And that is the question of, what does God want from me? What does God expect from me? And it's ironic, isn't it, that of all of the people in the universe that the scriptures record asks this question, it's a lawyer. And the lawyer asks of all people in the universe Jesus, in a very real sense, if we could boil all the rules, all the regulations, all the expectations into one manageable directive or instruction, if we could sum up all of the law in less characters than it takes to post a single tweet, what would it be? And of course, the answer is found in our text. We begin with the scribe's great question. Look again at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. We are, of course, immediately struck with the fact that this question that the Sadducees had answered had plagued the Pharisees. And even though I am sure they were glad that the Sadducees were one up, They were more interested in, again, getting at Jesus than getting at the truth. So again, what kind of a scribe are you in verse 35? What kind of a God gave us the law in verse 36? In verse 35, it says, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, 
Matthew tells us that the man is a scribe or a lawyer. The Greek word is nomikos from the sub, the root word nomos, which means the law, but it isn't a lawyer in the traditional sense that you and I might understand it. This particular person isn't a person who's necessarily tasked with the idea of pleading cases or, or arguing before a court. Here, the man is an expert in scriptural and rabbinic law. The man seems, at least on the surface, genuinely impressed with the answers that Jesus has offered to both the Herodians and the Sadduceans. His answers have been brilliant. The man may have wanted to trap Jesus in the beginning, but I'm going to suggest to you that during the course of the conversation, he becomes overcome, if you will, by the insight that Jesus has offered. This particular insight will come from another gospel, from Mark's gospel, which we'll look at a little bit later. But the question, of course, is in verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? I suspect that the question is personal at this point. The man has devoted his whole life to understanding and applying the law. Even though earlier, when it says that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced, they gathered together, it could very well have been that as they're gathering together and they're plotting, they're saying, if we could ask Jesus just one question in order to trap him into undermining his plans and purposes, what would it be? We might be even asking the question, if they ask the question, what's the greatest commandment? What is the expectation of the answer? Are they expecting that Jesus is going to say, well, monotheism is better than polytheism, and therefore you, you should love the Lord your God? Or whatever they're, they're looking for. But Again, once the question is asked, I'm going to suggest to you that in a very real sense, the lawyer himself wants to know the answer. He's devoted his whole life to this issue of the law. In the Jewish tradition, there are some 613 laws. And so there's been a, a hierarchy that's been given an analysis and a representation of those laws. He's looking for answers to questions. But it should, again, incite you to ask questions. What are the questions you are asking? What are the answers that you're looking for? Stephen Hawking is a man paralyzed with a debilitating disease called ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He is trapped in his own body. He sits in the academic chair of Isaac Newton. He's considered by some to be one of the smartest human beings on the planet Earth. But he is only capable of communication through technology that's been afforded. 
His life's dream is to discover the formula, the unifying formula or the unifying theory. His life's dream has been to ask and answer the question, what is this universe made of? What, what is the purpose of this universe? How can I make sense of the universe in which I'm living in? If God were to suddenly appear to Stephen Hawking and say, ask me any question you want, almost certainly he would ask, what is the principle that makes existence possible? This lawyer is asking the question, what is the greatest law? Now pause for a moment. And again, for those of you who are in small groups or CSD groups, you should pay careful attention at this point. If you could ask God just one question, what would you ask him? And again, it's not like the, the child who finds the magic lamp and the genie says, oh, you know, you have... Ask whatever you wish and you say, I want a thousand more wishes. Or, you know, this isn't one of those things where you go, how can I ask a thousand more questions? Let's just for purposes of discussion say, you could ask only one question. What would you ask? Would you ask, why is there evil in the world? Would you ask, what happens when you die? Would you ask, am I going to heaven? Would you ask, what is it that you want from me? If it's the last question, Jesus is about to answer your question whether you know it or not. In the last study, we learned that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection in verse 23. The Sadducees had a hard time believing and embracing the supernatural. They only believed in the parts of the Bible that made sense to them. And remember, their question was motivated by unbelief. This lawyer believed all the Bible. He believed all the law. He knew that the commandments were from God. Again, the man devoted his life to memorizing, understanding, and applying these commands. But knowing the commands doesn't necessarily bring a satisfying relationship with the Lord. Just like knowing the Bible, having read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, having read the prophets, having made your way through the scriptures, having grown up in a Christian home, having been exposed to what the Bible says about these important issues doesn't always bring a satisfying life. He knew the commandments were from God. But knowing the commandments isn't necessarily meaningful if you don't have a satisfying relationship with the Lord. Paul knew that the commands slay. That understanding the law, and he was a Pharisee that he understood the law, and that one of the things that he came to grips with is that a complete understanding of the law meant that you were a lawbreaker, and the scribe's question, the lawyer's question, tells us something about him, just like the question that you purposed in your own heart to ask God tells me something about you. Mark's gospel gives us some character hints 
about this lawyer. In Mark's gospel, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Then Jesus said, The first of the commandments is, Shema Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You've spoken the truth. For there is one God. There is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared answer him. The Sadducees had a hard time believing the supernatural. But this lawyer believes it all. And so this question was a matter of great debate amongst the ancient rabbinic schools. Which commandment is the greatest? There were really two extreme schools of thought. One was make up a rule or a regulation that would guide in every matter, guard in every circumstance. In our own culture and society, when we think about the origins of our country and its primitive beginnings, it begins with a declaration of independence. It continues with a constitution and a bill of rights. Today, we literally have millions of statutes, federal laws, state laws, municipal laws. We have tax codes. The Jews taught that there were 613 rules or laws that Moses received from God. By the way, this was the exact number of letters in the Jewish Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. They thought that the best way to know and love God was to know and love the law. Moses spoke face to face with God. In these 613 rules, there were 248 thou shalt nots. There were 365, excuse me, there were 248 thou shalts. There were 365 thou shalt nots. So there was 365 thou shalt nots for every day of the year, even though the Jewish calendar has 360 days in their year. Moses was called faithful in all of God's household. One ancient rabbi declared that God ranked Moses above the angels, that God revealed to Moses, keep the law and you will live. So they spent hours and hours and days and months and years arguing what it meant to keep the law. 
The other school of thought wanted to boil down the rules and the regulations into simple, easy maxims or sayings, simple guidelines. If you were to take the rules and the regulations and boil them down into one simple rule, what would it be? Hillel, a famous Jewish rabbi, was once told by a Gentile seeker that he would convert to Judaism if the rabbi could instruct him on the whole law while standing on one leg. I understand about that having just gotten a knee replacement. I'm standing on one leg right at this very moment. Hillel gave an abbreviated version of the golden rule. He said, what thou hatest for thyself, do not to thy neighbor. This is the whole of the law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. What he did is he flipped the golden rule and it's negative. Remember, Jesus would, would say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For many people, Christ and Christianity is a series of thou shalt nots. But Jesus is going to make it abundantly clear that this isn't about what you can't do. But this is about what you can do and should do. And so the Savior's great answer to the great question begins in verse 37. You shall love God with everything that you've got. In verse 37, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love may not make the world go round, but it makes the journey way more pleasant. Love the world certainly longs for it. In other words, we live in a world that is hungry and starving and, and famished for relationship and for love. And so Jesus gives this amazing answer. What the law is, is what love demands. That's what Jesus is saying. That it isn't just simply a set of rules and regulations to govern conduct before God and conduct with one another to keep the law what Jesus is basically suggesting to keep the law is to love the Lord it's to really love him with everything that you've got the law commands obedience and God commands love so Jesus quotes two very very familiar passages of scripture the first is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 which we read earlier in part in Mark's gospel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second scripture is Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Both scriptures were absolutely familiar to devout Jews. But Jesus is the first rabbi to link both of these scriptures into one statement. More about that again later. Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema or hear. Jewish congregations open their services with the ancient expression Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kavid Malkudol Lolam Vaid. Every 
Jew will say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Blessed be the name of his glorious majesty forever and ever. That's how you begin the day. We love the Lord. We keep the rules because we love him. We don't keep the rules in order to love him. We love him. So the Hebrew word aheb, which is love in that context, refers primarily to an act of the will. It isn't something that you necessarily emote or feel. And so the Greek word is agapeo. So love means a determined effort to care for the well-being and the welfare of another. And so Jesus is in effect saying that we make a determined effort concerning the well-being of the majesty and the glory that constitutes the revelation of God. This is the kind of love that makes the right choice and then is oblivious to the consequences. So what does that mean? What does it mean to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength? It, of course, means to love God with every pore in your body, every fiber in your being. These aren't simply compartments of your identity, but an expression of everything that we are. They're not simply points to be made along the way. To the ancient Hebrew, there wasn't any separation between the secular and the sacred. And the point that Jesus is making is we don't hold anything back from God because God hasn't held anything back from you. And so the heart is the center of desire and affection. The soul is our being, and in part what makes us unique. The mind is the seat of the intellect. So what does it mean to love the Lord with all your heart? Since in the Hebrew culture, the heart was the core of your being. In Proverbs 4.23 we read, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Clearly, what's inside of your heart will eventually leak out. So what does it mean to love God with all of your soul? In the Hebrew culture, there's another word that we might use to describe that. It's the word feeling or emotion, if you will. It seems to capture the meaning of the soul in this, in this context. This is the word that Jesus would use in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cries out in deep anguish. He would say, my soul, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. This was Jesus' way of saying, I am feel so bad, I feel like I'm going to die. Now, it's one thing for you and I to say, I feel like I'm going to die. And it's another thing for Jesus to think about and to say that this crushing weight of what he's about to endure is going to result in this overwhelming emotion 
So what does it mean to love God with all of your mind? Again, to the Hebrew, the mind was way more than just thought processes. It was way more than brain waves or cranial activity. The Hebrew term corresponds to what we might translate might. In Deuteronomy 6.5, the Hebrew term is very, very general. It means move ahead with strength and determination. It can also mean the seat of intellectual determination. But the idea is that you are doing this with all of your will. In other words, it's that thing that motivates you in the decision-making process that provides strength and determination. So genuine love for God is intelligent, but it also involves feeling, but it also involves willing. It also involves serving. It involves thought and intent and sensitivity and then action where action is possible and appropriate. Paul is going to later emphasize the issue of renewing your mind of taking every thought captive for Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. This is sort of the idea. Mark Knoll writes, quote, The mind is a gift from God. It may be used for his glory, neglected to its waste, or abused idolatrously. It is no exaggeration to say that the process of secularization, which has posed so many difficulties for Christians in our century, is in considerable measure the result of Christians neglecting the questions of the mind. And if you have grown up in a home, or if anyone has ever said to you, just take it by faith, that's not the biblical position. God wants you to use your mind. God gave you a brain so that you could think. It's okay to use the brain that God gave you, the mind that God has given you. And so in verse 38, it says, this is the first and the great commandment. Why? Jesus says this because he sees this as the source that informs and allows everything else to take place. He calls it the chief or the first and the great commandment. All our activity flows from how we think, how we feel, how we act in our relationship with God. God isn't interested in empty, meaningless, contentless, emotionless, heartless words. God isn't impressed by or bound by or satisfied by simple repetition or simple ritual, or mere formulism. God is not impressed with mere formalism. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It's the idea that, okay, I'll get up, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot up a prayer. Oh, God, thanks for the day. Bye. Or like when your kid's growing up, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, whoever eats the fastest gets the most. In other words, we we come up with these bizarre prayers that we think are, are somehow obligatory. But God isn't impressed with rote and repetition. 
God isn't impressed with our things. God desires the person, not the thing that the person possesses. And so some people love their things so much that they don't make any room at all for God. No wonder God will sometimes bring us to a place where we have to part with it. What a small thing that is. If getting rid of stuff means possessing Christ. And this is now we understand what Paul meant when he said he was willing to consider all things lost so that he could obtain Christ. Jesus wants us. He wants to fill the space and not simply to address the desires or the affections or the lusts or the accommodations or the temporal stuff. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy possessions. I'm simply asking you if you enjoy things more than you enjoy the Lord, if you enjoy things more than you enjoy your brothers and sisters, then this is indicative that there might be a problem. This is what you love determines what you are. Show me what you love and I'll show you who you are. This is why Jesus said the true believer, the genuine believer is going to love the Lord. Love him. Love each other. Love is the stamp, the mark, the hallmark of genuine conversion. The make believer can fake affection. But at some point, he or she will fall short in the category of love. The early Christians were marked by love. Listen to this author. His name is Aristides. He was a pagan Roman governor. He wrote, quote, about Christians, about a local congregation in, in the province in which he governed. Quote, they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they freely give it to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers in the spirit of God, unquote. Can you imagine if the governor of the state of Colorado wrote to the president of the United States concerning the church in Denver and he said, Hey, when I go to Denver and I'm hanging around the Christians, they love each other. They never fail to help the widows. They save orphans who, from, from any harm. They freely give to one another. C can you imagine if some sort of revolution took place where all of the governors in all of the states, there was this transformation that began to take place? And so Jesus says, you shall love others with everything that you are. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is again quoting the familiar passage of scripture from Leviticus 19.18. In another famous story, you'll remember that Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, where a lawyer says, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with, what is it that's written in the law? And he responds with, love God with all your heart, with your soul, and with your strength, and with your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, 
you've answered rightly. Do this and, you're li- and you will live. But then the young lawyer wanting to justify himself, that means get out of the obligation, said, who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans were a group of people despised by the Jews. The point of the parable is in part to take care for those that God has placed in your life to stop looking for excuses for a failure to love. And he is making this in parabolic technicolor that the only way that you can actually see the invisible thing that you and I call love is by the visible tangent, tangential. Let me see if I can put this even clearer. In the absolute way that we treat one another, Jews believed loving your neighbor meant loving other Jews. Jewish neighborhoods were filled with Jewish people. You're free to love your neighbor, the Jew would pray. Thank God all my neighbors are Jews. We laugh, but you know what this would sometimes mean? I'm free to love my neighbor, Jews. But then they gave themselves permission to hate the Gentiles. It's like living in Denver. We are free to love the Broncos and hate the Raiders and the Chargers, and the Chiefs. Some Jewish people came to believe that hating the Gentiles was another way of loving God. Imagine if you're rooting for your sport team and you go, hey, I love the Broncos, and I hate the Chargers, and I hate the Raiders, and I hate the Chiefs, as if that is proof of love for the Broncos. And so what Jesus is basically saying is that's not the way of a Christian. It isn't you can love everyone on Sunday and then hate someone on Monday. You can't love God who is invisible and hate your brother who is visible. This is the argument that John gives in 1 John. Belonging to God and loving God means loving what God loves. So John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even now. If you love God but hate people, John doesn't suggest simply that you're a liar, simply that you're conflicted, simply that you're confused. He accuses you of murder. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When a person says, look, I love God. It's just people I can't stand. It's indicative that there's something wrong. And we may find a way to justify our disconnect by saying something, okay, okay, I love them in my heart. I just can't stand them in my presence. But even then you begin to understand, wait a minute, I think something's wrong here. 
No wonder Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law. That's the other 611 commandments. All of the law and all of the prophets. In other words, if you do this in a way that is honoring and pleasing, that's consistent with the character of God, then you have fulfilled all righteousness. And now we reread Mark's gospel, chapter 12, verse 32. So the scribe said, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. There is one God. There is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When he says, well said, it's a Hebrew expression. It means... What a beautiful way of saying it. That's his answer. What a beautiful answer he's saying. It's more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the scribe's way of saying, if you killed every cow on earth, if you slew every goat on the planet earth, if you destroyed every dove, if there was a mountain of dead animals, if there were rivers of blood, it couldn't substitute for simple love and obedience to the Lord. And I have to wonder in asking and then receiving the answer, he thought to himself, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if I could do that. We read that the law kills. The law restrains evil. The law is like a mirror. It reveals our dirty face. You don't wash with a mirror. You wash with soap. The lawyer may have thought, again, if I could love God like that, at the risk of being misunderstood, it could very well be that the lawyer of the law realizes at this point the impossibility of keeping the law and asking the question, have I ever done that? Have I ever loved God? all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength, with all of my might. And you could apply it to something far less invisible and much more visible. Have I ever loved my child like that, my wife like that, my husband like that, my neighbor like that, my enemy like that? The purpose of the law was in part to keep us from boasting in our own goodness. It exposes our sins and it exposes our shortcomings. And the Apostle Paul wrote the reason the law was given so that every mouth would be stopped and that the whole world would become accountable to God. So how can we get that kind of love of God inside of us? In Romans 5.5, Paul writes... Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's not something that we have to fabricate, generate, make up. It's something that God is willing to give you because you love him. Because you've accepted Christ. 
Because you've received the Holy Spirit. Now we understand when Jesus tells the lawyer in Mark's gospel, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not that far away. Think about it. The love that Jesus is speaking about is an unselfish love that humans are incapable of exercising apart from the Holy Spirit. It would appear that this lawyer comes right up to the border. He comes right up to the edge of the kingdom. There is this line there. There is this line where on one side of the line we're enemies of God, but then on the other side we're friends. On one side of the line it's darkness. On the other side it's light. On on one side of the line, it's unbelief. On the other side, it's faith and belief. On one side of the line, it's God-hater. And on the other side of the line, it's God-lover. So how do you cross over that line? How do you leave the one and come to the other? According to the New Testament, we repent of our sin and we believe the gospel. We understand it's our sin that separated us from God. We understand the gospel that God sent Christ to be the savior of our sin. Are you near or are you far? I'll ask the question again. What question would you ask God? What's the burning question inside of your soul? Some of you may be familiar with John Wesley. He was born in 1703 and he grew up in a godly home. His father was a priest in the Church of England. His mother devoted herself to the Lord. Wesley went to Oxford. He was a professor of logic and Greek. He was ordained a priest in 1728. He joined a Christian club at Oxford. And his brother Charles and he soon would unite with a very famous soon-to-be evangelist, George Whitfield, who was the Billy Graham of his generation. And even the other people on the campus would flock to them and call them holy rollers. Wesley set aside an hour each day to pray and meditate. He took communion once a week. He visited prisoners and the sick and the poor. He did all of this and imagined that he was a Christian. In 1735, still unconverted, he was sent as a missionary to America to minister and to reach out to the Native Americans in Georgia. It was a disaster. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. He utterly failed in the mission. He contracted a terrible disease. He almost died. He returned to England. He wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who, oh, who will convert me, unquote. His mission experience taught him about his wickedness and his waywardness of heart. And on the boat ride home, he met some Moravian Christians whose simple faith had a profound impact on him. And through a series of conversations, to quote Wesley's own words, he was, quote, clearly convinced of unbelief of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved, unquote. And then on the morning of May 29th, 1738, 
something happened Wesley would never forget. He opened his Bible to Mark chapter 12, verse 34, and read these words. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And the verse became Wesley's life verse. There's some amazing parallels between this lawyer and Wesley. Both were clergymen. Both were well-educated. Both were religious. Both were well-meaning. Both prayed. Both fasted. Both gave. Both read the Bible. Both served the poor. And both were lost. And Wesley got saved. He became the most famous preacher, teacher, and evangelist of his generation. He became a man on fire. He preached everywhere. He, he never seemed to grow tired. He preached 42,000 sermons. He averaged 4,500 miles a year, not in his Ford pickup truck, on a horse. He rode 60 to 70 miles on horseback every day. He preached three sermons a day. He founded the 18th century version of Calvary Chapel. He would eventually, which would eventually be called the, the Methodist Church. We know what happened to Wesley. What happened to the lawyer? The text doesn't tell us. We don't know. What will happen to you? What will happen to you? Do you love the Lord? Do you belong to him? Have you repented and believed the gospel? Have you in the most simple way Understood that your sins separate you from God and that Jesus is the Savior. If you love the Lord, then number one, reflect on his glory. It's found in Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. I've, I've written down just a couple of things. Number two, trust in his divine power. That's Psalm 31, 23. Three, seek fellowship with him. That's Psalm 63, 1 through 8. Be sensitive to how God feels, Psalm 69, 9. Love what he loves, Psalm 119, 72. Hate what he hates, Psalm 97, 10. Grieve over sin, Matthew 27, 75. Reject the world, 1 John 2, 15. Long to be with him, that's 2 Timothy 4, 8. Obey him with your whole heart, that's John 14, 21. Do you know him? Do you love him? Will you serve him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that these aren't instructions just to simply help us understand what it is that we're supposed to do. But these are instructions on who we could be if we will surrender. If we will give you our heart. If we will confess our sin. 
if we will trust you and then love you. And Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Lord, I'm reminded of what Wesley even said, that he would preach the gospel so that those who would hear and believe would be saved. And Heavenly Father, I pray that perhaps someone is listening who needs to turn from their sin, believe the gospel, and receive Christ as Savior. Lord, I pray that in their own heart, they would confess their sin and say, Lord, I need you. I know that there's something wrong with me and I I need a savior. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I want to know you and love you and serve you. I want to walk with you and be with you. I don't want to just be near to the kingdom of God. I want to be in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, again, I pray that they would cross over, that they would take the step out of darkness into light, out of unbelief and into belief. And that, Lord, you would do what only you can do. Save them. Change them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.